Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Olympics provide a platform to convey that Japan has fully recovered from one of the world's worst nuclear accidents. Do you think the Japanese government is prepared to put residents at risk, expose them to dangerous levels of radiation just to carry off the reconstruction games? It's not a question, uh, are they prepared to? They are already. Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. If you've been listening to our bi-weekly show, you know that we frequently dive deeper into new real sports stories, but periodically we also take you back into the archive to update reporting on topics that are timely or have taken on new relevance. And that's what we're doing on this episode, with a subject that our show has covered extensively over the years, and that's front and center at the moment, the Olympics. Real Sports has done many stories that focused on the unseen impacts of global sports biannual festival. Things like the exploitation of Olympic athletes, the machinations of the International Olympic Committee, or the ways in which countries that host the Games have jeopardized the well-being of their own citizens in order to spend lavishly on shiny new stadiums. Reports like these have raised many questions, but made one thing abundantly clear. The stakeholders of the Olympics, like the International Olympic Committee and the countries who bid to host the Games, they go to extraordinary lengths to make this event happen every two years, no matter the controversy or the cost. And that's always the case. But the Tokyo Games in particular have been an exercise in persistence, not only due to the pandemic, but also hazardous conditions in Japan that have led some to wonder whether these games were a good idea in the first place. On today's podcast, you'll hear clips from a series of reports done by our David Scott, focused on the Tokyo Olympics and the measures Japan and the IOC have taken to ensure that the games go on. And to accompany us for this discussion, we're now joined by correspondent David Scott. David, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gersh. You obviously have a unique view of the IOC and the Olympic Games from all the work you've done. So I'll start by asking you, broadly speaking, when the average viewer tunes to the grand and glitzy opening ceremonies of the Tokyo Games, what will they not be seeing? <laughs> well, uh, they, they won't be seeing the blood, sweat and tears that the athletes have put in in the last, you know, some of them decade or more to qualify for the Games. They won't be seeing the media deals that have been cut to the tune of billions and billions of dollars to sort of grease the skids and uh, fulfill the the ambitions of the business model of the IOC. In this particular case, this year, they won't be seeing the blood, sweat and tears put in by the Japanese medical community to contain a still threatening virus. And more and more, these things will encroach on the games and I think in some ways, you know, define their legacy. 
Well, before we get to the complications that the pandemic has posed for the Tokyo Olympics, I want to go back to January 2020, when you reported on another public health issue where these games are concerned, the radiation that still exists in Fukushima from the 2011 tsunami that hit a nuclear power plant and left that region in ruins. While Olympic officials had loudly and proudly said that any radiation was long gone and this was effectively a non-issue, David's reporting told a different story. Take a listen to this excerpt from David's piece last year. ...of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. When the Japanese capital was awarded the 2020 Summer Games, the nation rejoiced and its leaders saw an opportunity. Japan would not just build an Olympics, but would rebuild Fukushima, and in 2020 would show the world that the nation was healed and whole. We believe the Olympics is a chance we must seize. Kazunori Tanaka is the minister in charge of rebuilding Fukushima for the Japanese government, which has branded the 2020 Olympics as the, quote, reconstruction games. What is the meaning of the reconstruction games? We hope to utilize the Olympics as an opportunity for people to correctly understand how far Fukushima has come with reconstruction. In recent years, with the Olympics approaching, thousands of nuclear refugees have returned to the disaster zone, assured by the government that they'll be safe in neighborhoods and houses the government says have been scrubbed clean of radiation. The numbers indicate that there is no problem and there is no need for people to be worried. But as shoppers return to stores here and children return to schools, just in time for Japan's moment in the Olympic spotlight, there may be one small problem with the government's success story. And to say that this is a situation under control is a complete lie. You make it sound like some kind of exercise in propaganda. That's exactly what it is. After the meltdown at the power plant, as everyone else was fleeing the Fukushima disaster zone, nuclear researcher Sean Burney came here, determined to monitor the unfolding crisis up close for the environmental group Greenpeace. For the past nine years, he's been canvassing the region, measuring levels of radiation, and says that most of the area is not remotely fit for habitation that it's littered with so-called hotspots, pockets of extreme radioactivity. The sort of radiation levels we have here, if you make a comparison, for example, with chest X-rays, are the equivalent of tens, hundreds, in fact, over a thousand X-rays per year. What does that mean for my future health? By a thousand X-rays per annum, you're dramatically increasing the risk that you'll get cancer, and ultimately it will be fatal. Bernie says the authorities here know this just as well as he does, but that they're determined to meet their goal, to show the world that the Olympic host nation is fully healed. The Olympics provide a platform to convey that Japan has fully recovered from one of the world's worst nuclear accidents. Do you think the Japanese government is prepared to put residents at risk, expose them to dangerous levels of radiation, just to carry off the reconstruction games? It's not a question, uh, are they prepared to? They are already. 
They've put people's lives at risk. They've put children's lives at risk. They've completely disregarded their human rights. So yeah, the Japanese government will do anything it can to basically achieve its objective. We're back with David Scott. David, put Fukushima in context of the Olympics for us. Have competitions or events been planned there? And if not, why why has it been so important for Japan to make this big show of the city's resurrection? There is a venue in Fukushima that was used in the lead up to the games. They also made a big show of parading the torch through the streets of Fukushima. It is not a place where, for the most part, events are being held during the games themselves, but it's very much front and center in Japan's own agenda to sort of showcase what they've done to attempt to clean up this nuclear disaster. I think to understand the place that Fukushima holds in the national psyche of Japan, you you really have to go back to Japan's first ever Olympic Games, the 1964 Games, which really was a huge coming out party for, for the country following its isolation after World War II. And they skillfully and successfully used the Games in that way to fulfill their domestic uh, and international diplomatic agenda. And it worked. It mobilized the Japanese people. It allowed Japan to be embraced by the world community in a way that it hadn't been for decades since the Great War. And so fast forward to 2011 and then 2020, and you see a, a, a similar kind of national ambition to, to mark the end of the Fukushima nuclear disaster to declare to the Japanese public and to the world community that that Japan has overcome this catastrophic disaster. And so the Fukushima Games, uh, the Reconstruction Games, as the government branded the games, has been this sort of tortured exercise in both nationalism and international diplomacy. You were on the ground in Fukushima, able to see and feel the remnants of this disaster firsthand. What did you find there? Yeah, well, it's it's a bizarre scene. First of all, I don't think it's well understood that the reactors that exploded in 2011 are still melting down. And a vast amount of seawater is being used to keep the core cool, lest it melt down again. That's creating its own ecological disaster underground. And then there's the area around the plant. They've deployed a vast army of radiation workers to basically scratch the surface and collect the surface dirt and bag it up. And you see it basically everywhere you look. Nobody knows where to take it. There's no obvious place to dispose of it. And so it just stands there as this sort of morbid monument to the disaster. Well, as part of this report, you also conducted a sit-down interview with a government official from Japan, their Minister of Reconstruction, as he's titled. The discussion turned bizarre, frankly. Can you tell our audience what happened in that interview? Yeah, this was a real... I mean, I I don't pretend to understand the, the culture of Japanese bureaucracy. I had never been to the country before. I don't speak the language. But this was a real strange trip down the rabbit hole. When we walked into the room to meet the minister, there were 17 aides aligned in columns and rows in the interview room. I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, I've been in the in the White House when the president is being interviewed, and you don't see 17 aides surrounding him. 
They were there to feed the minister answers in pretty much real time. And that's something that I had never seen at any time anywhere in my in my whole career. And it descended into a absurd farce where aides were at some point crawling on the ground to slip pieces of paper with the right answer to the minister. And and so the whole thing really um, reflected exactly what this story is about. It's an exercise in government control and messaging. You could use the word propaganda and, and nobody could really fault you and probably aimed as much at the Japanese public as at the international audience. Well, David, the, the Fukushima story was really remarkable to watch. And if people out there haven't seen it, the full piece is now on HBO Max, so be sure to check it out. But let's move on to some of your other reporting. While Japan has spent billions to host these games, the greatest stakeholders in any Olympics are the IOC. And you, David, have more recently reported on the lengths the lords of international sport have gone to in order to forge ahead with the games during a pandemic no matter the cost to public health. It's something we saw in full view last March when the rest of the sports world shut down, but the Olympic mission carried on. Whether it's football, rugby, golf, or Formula One, world sport has come to a standstill. But on the same day those sports were going dark, the IOC was holding a ceremony in Greece to light the Olympic flame. This demonstrates once more our commitment to the success of the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020. The IOC made it clear the upcoming games would proceed as planned, and any athlete or coach who hoped to attend would need to qualify by competing in upcoming events around the world, virus or no virus. I don't have any choice. You, t- you, you are preparing four years for this competition. Right. And uh, you cannot say, oh, Four years, forget it. I don't want to be there. Tomo Kadic is a coach for the Croatian national boxing team. He and his team and teams from 45 other European nations were summoned to London for the IOC's boxing qualifiers. Kadic says friends and family urged him not to go. Stay home. It's not safe. Really, it's not safe. People are starting to die. It's especially dangerous in your sport because... Boxers and coaches come into contact with bodily fluids all the time, right? Spit, snot, sweat. Yeah, of course. Boxing is like that. But the real danger came when the athletes from those 46 countries were sent back home, potentially carrying the virus to places all across Europe. You can bring it home and you can spread it with your family. That's the biggest problem. Did you worry about that? Of course, everybody was scared because uh, we didn't want to spend it in our country. But that may have been exactly what happened. Real Sports has learned that at least a dozen boxers and coaches from four different countries brought the virus home with them. Among them, the Croatian boxing coach, Tomo Kadic. David, I remember when our staff huddled last March and discussed the state of the sports world as everything was shutting down, what a bizarre time that was. Do you remember when you first learned about these Olympic trials carrying forward? Were you surprised that the Olympics were the lone holdout? I was shocked, but not surprised. I mean, by then we had covered the IOC enough to know that they do have a penchant for putting their own private interests, their own financial interests uh, ahead of the 
public interest, of the public good in this case, it's never clear what to sort of put past them. So amidst the worldwide shutdown, it was a shocking spectacle to see them carry on with their planning for the games, carry on with qualifying events, move hundreds of athletes you know, around the world to qualifying events and then back. But in some ways, if you look at their history, it's, um, you know, while it might be a low mark, it's not all that surprising. It was recently reported, David, that Olympic athletes and coaches this year must sign liability waivers. So the IOC is not responsible if they contract COVID at the games. Do coaches like Tomo Kotic or Olympic athletes have any recourse to weigh in on safety protocols, which are, of course, especially critical right now during a pandemic? Not in that structure. The IOC governs national Olympic committees in all participating countries. And and for all intents and purposes, they control the national bodies. You can opt out, but very few go that course, given the skin that they have in the game. You know, and here's where we're starting to see some separation between some of the Olympic athletes that that have a broader perspective and conscious about this stuff and the IOC. Uh, There are many Olympic athletes that have grown critical of the IOC and the way it does business. And I think the example of COVID and the IOC's treatment of coronavirus from the beginning has in fact alienated a number of Olympic athletes. But what are they supposed to do? You know, in some sports, there's no professional league equivalent. It's all about the Olympics. And so it's a big decision for an athlete that's put most of his or her young life into their sport to just walk away from the biggest stage. And most are motivated to participate in sort of whatever it costs. Real Sports previously reported on the notion of sport as a super spreader, like at that soccer game in Bergamo, Italy in in early 2020 that led to an explosion of cases around Europe. Aside from the boxing trial you mentioned in your story, do we know of other recent events that the IOC has held that have resulted in significant outbreaks? Well, aside from the boxing event, you know, we know about um, a fencing event in Hungary that sickened 30 people, at least, including athletes from Japan and Germany. We know of a judo event that took place in, uh, in Georgia, in which there were over a dozen positive cases and you know, some countries refused to host qualifying events. And so for the most part, they, they ended up in places where the IOC has enormous leverage um, and influence over fairly autocratic governments. And they got people sick and they spread the virus. There's no question about it. Now, nobody has done the math beyond perhaps one or two degrees of, of separation. So all we know is that dozens and dozens of athletes and coaches returned home with the virus. We have no idea how many people, those people infected, and so on and so on. But for the most part, the ban has just played on towards Tokyo 2021. Well, eventually at the height of the pandemic last year, countries did begin pulling out of the Olympics, forcing the IOC to postpone, but they seem determined not to be denied again. And recently, David, you reported on yet another way in which the relentless push towards Tokyo is taking a toll on public health specifically in vaccine-deficient countries like India. Here in India, funeral pyres have burned day and night, and makeshift graves have been dug around the clock as COVID cases and COVID deaths have piled up out of control. Because this nation, like most others on Earth, has not a healthy supply of the vaccine, 
but a devastating shortage. Yes, there is a huge shortage. Huge shortage. It's not that you won't get vaccinated. Yes, it may take us four years that the way things are going to vaccinate people. I don't know. Few people are more aware of the shortage than Raninda Singh, a longtime politician here who has watched in horror as his country deteriorates. Every single segment of our society in our country has lost someone. And not someone, a lot of people. The crisis reached its peak on May 6th when India set a world record for single-day COVID cases. Yet it was forced to shut down many of its vaccination centers because there were no vaccines to give out. But a far different scene took place that very day behind closed doors in this hotel ballroom where amidst the disaster, a parade of young, healthy and strong men and women were being vaccinated. The man who organized the event was the politician Raninda Singh, who doubles as a powerful Olympic figure in the country. Singh had been given marching orders, he said, by the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, to vaccinate his Olympians before this summer's games. They have to go. My Olympic Committee tells me, the IOC tells me, get them vaccinated. So we are going to be absolutely 100% uh, two jabs before we come to Tokyo. The IOC is saying, if we are going to a nation where we are going to be imposing on the locals of that nation our presence, let's at least be as sterile as we can. The same pattern has played out around the world in recent months. Even as most of the world's nations have far too few doses of the vaccines for their citizens, the IOC has been imploring them to vaccinate their Olympians from Brazil to Kenya to Cambodia and beyond. The IOC president wrote the head of state of Peru... Uh, saying, quote, the global Olympic community has in its affections the brave Peruvian people. And he goes on to say the IOC would strongly appreciate if Peru's Olympic teams could be vaccinated before the Games. Well, I hear a very unethical edict from the IOC in those words. Dr. Michael Baker is the architect of New Zealand's renowned COVID elimination strategy which has prevented anyone from dying in that country from the virus for nearly a year. He says that the world's priority in distributing vaccines should be clear. It starts with um, healthcare workers, and then it goes to older populations and those with long-term conditions, and you gradually work down through the, the less vulnerable groups. And one of the last groups you would normally get to would be healthy young athletes. Mexico um, began vaccinating its Olympic hopefuls and athletes ahead of doctors. Lithuania started uh, vaccinating its uh, Olympians uh, ahead of oncology patients and people over the age of, of 80. Uganda and Zambia, Vietnam, poor countries that had almost no vaccine supply, started vaccinating athletes and Olympic hopefuls before 99% of the population had yet to get a single shot. The International Olympic Committee has a huge amount to answer for if they have promoted this distortion of vaccine prioritisation in countries around the world. Diverting vaccines away from the high priority groups means people get sick and die. It's very simple. David, Raninder Singh says this vaccine strategy for athletes has been a clear directive from the IOC, but to clarify, is the IOC mandating athletes be vaccinated or just encouraging it? 
It has not mandated it. In fact, delegations are allowed to travel to Japan unvaccinated, although they have to they have to subscribe or submit to a stricter set of protocols and rules. But they have used their influence to almost strong arm governments to move the athletes to the front of the line. And they've done so effectively, even in countries that have you know, woefully short supplies of vaccines. As a world community, we're still deep in the tunnel and there's there's no light in sight for many, many, many countries. Even the nation of Japan, which is hosting the games, is barely at 11 or 12 percent vaccination rate. Many of the participating countries are in the single digits. You know, most of Africa in the single digits. India's today at 5 percent. So these are countries that are still very much in the midst of the crisis. And there are cases like Peru, where we know the IOC president personally wrote the head of state to ask that the athletes be effectively moved to the front of the line. There are some cases where Olympic athletes and hopefuls got vaccinated before doctors. Many cases where they got the jab before octogenarians. And so it really did distort vaccine distribution in a lot of places in a very ugly way, in an indefensible way. But the IOC is a sufficiently muscular organization that it can impose its will. And that's what we saw unfold in the past few months as vaccines have been rolled out around the world. Do we know of any vaccine-needy countries whose Olympic committees have pushed back on this declined to have their athletes vaccinated, citing this as the reason because they didn't want to jump the line? Well, it's interesting. This is an area where we start to see athletes themselves dissent, particularly the case of Canada stands out. Now, the top Olympic official in Canada, Dick Pound, who's a longtime IOC member, I think he's actually has the most tenure on the International Olympic Committee's executive committee. He defended the practice of moving athletes to the front of the line, even when Canada had you know, almost nobody who was fully vaccinated. But individual athletes pushed back and refused to go to the front of the line and challenged the idea that it was that it was appropriate. But, you know, as time wore on, I, I think even some of them ended up, you know, succumbing to the pressure, lest they not be able to safely compete in Japan. All of this raises the question, when it comes to regulating the Olympics writ large, the IOC, as you've noted, essentially oversees the national committees. But is there any check on the IOC's behavior, any mechanism in place that can rein them in if they pursue a course of action that proves dangerous? There is no controlling authority on the IOC. They answer to no one. And it is that structure that has allowed the the arrogance and the avarice to go unchecked. And in some ways, in many ways, that is the heart of the problem. Without a sort of public outcry, a public backlash, without the world community drawing a bright line and saying, we're not going to come, we're not going to pay you know, we're not going to be part of it. The IOC has been allowed to continue to grow and go unchecked in this respect. And it's hard to imagine that if coronavirus doesn't stoke the outrage of the world community in opposition to such, you know, misguided plans, um, I don't know what it would take. Before we sign off, David, let's talk about the current state of play. As we sit here recording, we're less than two weeks from the opening ceremonies. Japan recently declared a state of emergency, and there was an announcement that there would be no fans at these Olympics, a reversal of what had been previously decided. 
What's at stake for Japan if they decide it's just too hazardous for their country under these circumstances and they want to pull out? And do they even get to make that decision at this juncture independent of the IOC? Yeah, good questions. <laughs> right now, I think if they could see a way to pull out while saving face, while cutting their losses, um, uh, there are clearly voices within the Japanese government structure and certainly in the broader public that would support that. But the Olympics, among other things, is, is a legal contract between the IOC and the host government. They're on the hook for money. And I think there's a there's a widespread belief that they could be subject to legal penalties, legal fines, monetary fines in restitution of the IOC if they were to, to pull out. Uh, so, you know, think about it from the Japanese government's point of view. They've already sunk possibly $20 billion into the pursuit, tied it to this nationalist agenda around Fukushima. They right now have uh, paved the way for this huge event that they have no idea how to back out of. I don't think there's ever been a case where countries had to contemplate it two weeks out from the games. Uh, a few weeks ago, the Japanese, 80% of the Japanese public were against the games. The Tokyo Medical Society, which represents 6,000 doctors, pleaded with their government and the IOC to call off the games. This was just you know a few weeks ago. 10,000 volunteers quit over concerns about COVID. But that's been replaced by a kind of acquiescence now. And in some ways, you know, that's the IOC's gambit, that they can create this sense of inevitability around the games that causes the host government and Olympic delegations all over the world to follow suit. And so now it seems like it is destined to happen. And the only question is at, at what cost, at what cost in particular to the Japanese public that will be left to pick up the pieces. Well, David, the countdown to the opening ceremonies is on. We'll be watching closely to see how it plays out. And we thank you again for joining us today for this discussion. Thanks for having me, Max. Really appreciate it. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports on July 27th. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.